Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Dissenter. Joining me today is Dr. Andrew Thomas. He is a lecturer in psychology at Swansea University in the UK. His research is concerned with the differences in mating strategies within and between the sexes. He also has a secondary interest in cyber psychology and online interaction. And these will be the topics of our conversation today. So, Dr. Thomas, thank you a lot for coming on the show. You're welcome. Okay, great. It's my pleasure. Okay, so the first question that I would ask you is, so there's this uh, thing that is very annoying for many people out there, that is uh, the sex differences, the differences between men and women have a biological basis. And you study these differences when it comes to mating, that is what men and women prefer in terms of psychological and physical traits in the opposite sex. So could you please tell us a little bit about what are the main differences when it comes to choosing a mate between men and women? Okay, so what people tend to do well, what people need to realize, I guess, first of all, is that humans actually have lots of different mating styles or mating types. Um, it's not the case that everyone just falls in love and gets married and settles down and has a long-term relationship. Um, anyone who's been to any sort of college campus will know that um, you have different mating arrangements, such, such as uh, one-night stands and booty calls and things like that. So depending on what type of domain you're looking at um, in terms of mating style, you'll see different forms of sex differences emerge. So the most common type of mating worldwide is monogamy, uh, long-term relationships. And you actually find that um, while there are some differences between the sexes in the in, with regards to long-term mating, the sexes aren't too dissimilar. So uh, it's not the case that um, men do all of the competing and peacocking and trying to attract and women don't do any of that uh, because if that was the case there would be no no such thing as the makeup industry um, and uh, women would um, get to be able to just go out everywhere in whatever comfortable clothes they wanted to and it would make no difference whatsoever on the number of men who are attracted to them but that's not the case we find that both men and women when seeking long-term partners um, put a lot of effort in are we equally choosy and picky um, and yeah, uh, discriminate ac across a number of criteria where the differences come in and bear in mind these are we're talking about mean differences here so by that I mean that you're going to find differences at the group level based on averages uh, but you'll always be able to find counter examples so um, you can say as a generalization that men tend to be taller than women. Uh, but I can personally think of quite a few women who are taller than me. I'm um, five foot 11 or six foot minus one, as I tell some people. Um, I can still think of lots of, of women who are uh, taller than me. And likewise, there uh, you can have take the average woman and she can still think of men who are shorter than she is. So we're on about overlapping distributions here. But if you were to pin me down and ask within a, a long-term relationship some of the differences, um, in preferences, it's things like um, social status and good financial prospect. So what you find here is that women tend to put more of an emphasis on that when selecting partners than the men do. Again, average differences. Um, and what's really interesting about that one, for example, is that it doesn't seem to change all that much depending on the individual social status of the woman. So what you tend to find is uh, if someone is a um, really successful um, junior doctor, they're a woman, uh, they have lots of resources, they've got a good wage, they don't need to rely on a secondary income from a partner or a status uh, or their status. And yet they still tend to desire partners who are of higher status than they are. Uh, so if you've got someone who's a, a, a female junior doctor, then they would probably feel quite attracted towards some uh, world-class male neurosurgeon, for example. So social status tends to be one domain. Um, you do get some differences in physical attractiveness as well, um, with men putting slightly um, a slightly higher emphasis on that. 
Height differences tend to be another one. Um, that's quite interesting, actually. I was reading a, a bit on that recently. So the average, um, uh, if, if you were to take women and ask them what uh, height they would like in a long-term male partner compared to them, they'll typically tell you about 12 centimeters uh, higher. So they want a partner who's 12 centimeters higher than they are. Uh, men actually uh, want women who are, are shorter than they are. Uh, but it's much less. It's about um, seven centimeters. No, no, it's not. It's even less than that. It's like five centimeters. Uh, but when you actually look at the actual pairings, uh, it tends to be more towards the female desire than the male desire. So that's another difference. Um, other ones uh, tend to be age, um, mainly driven perhaps by this difference in need for uh, or desire for social status. Of course, the older you are, the greater, greater opportunities you have for accumulating social status. So you tend to find uh, with that one that women tend to go for older partners and uh, men tend to desire younger partners. Um, and sorry, I know I'm waffling a, a bit because I'm a terrible waffler. I, I, my fiance um, constantly tells me I, I get on my soapbox at the drop of a hat, so I'll, I'll try and round it up. Um, that's kind of long term. Short term, then, you get different differences, um, and they tend to be a lot more accentuated between the sexes. So you will find that, the again, like the social status, like age, those differences go from being quite small and moderate to, to fairly large within that domain. And uh, the driver of that tends to be the fact that um, you're then uh, sucking out the, the investment component of the relationship. It changes the dynamic somewhat. Yes, all that you just said is very interesting and I would like to ask you as well. Uh, do you think that because we have a means, as you said, for each sex uh, uh, and uh, it is a distribution, so not all women and not all men fall under the same value, let's say, in terms of their preferences. Do, do you think that uh, that could in some way, shape or form give space to the idea or the proposal that come from certain people from certain fields of social science when they propose that uh, gender and they define gender as being the psychological part or the behavioral part of uh, each sex or how people behave or, or how each people behave or present themselves socially and etc. Uh, do you think that that in some way, shape or form could give space for, for us to say that uh, when it comes to gender, if it even makes sense to separate gender from sex, of course, uh, to for people to have more than the standard two genders that we consider? So this is a, a hot topic in the area at the moment. And from my perspective, it's a, a, a land. It's like w walking through a landmine field because a lot of people who take the, the non-gender binary perspective, um, when they're talking to you about these things, they've kind of made up their mind. They're arguing not from emotion and not from reason. Um, and I'm, I'm a very open person. Uh, I, I come across as very firm in my opinions when I talk, but I, I genuinely not. And if someone can show me evidence for, for something and it's good evidence, I will 100% take that on board and change my opinion. So that's kind of a caveat. That being said, I'm a, 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 I'm a skeptic of the non-gender binary perspective. And that's for a couple of different reasons. So uh, number one, people don't seem to be able to consistently define what gender is. And that's not just academics. Um, that's people on the ground giving... I've, I've actually... Um, uh, sort of trans awareness training, where a huge component of that was talking about... And people keep coming back to, we can't tell you for certain, we can't define for you what gender is. There's no... Now, for me as a scientist, I find that very um, dissatisfying. Um, I don't feel that I can work with um, a concept when whenever you talk to someone, the definition of that concept changes. So it's, it's not just on the ground. So there's an article um, recently um, published in the American Psychologist, I think it is, by uh, some scientists I've actually got a lot of respect for. 
um, from different areas. It was it's called like five challenges to the gender binary perspective. Um, and each of the scientists, you had like an, um, an endocrinologist, you had a psychologist, sociologist, and so on. And each of them present from their own research and argument against the binary. And the arguments themselves, unfortunately, I, I find them, again, very dissatisfying. Um, but aside from that, the thing that really stood out to me is on the first page, there's a footnote that basically says we cannot, as the five of us, as experts in this, who are driving this article, we can't come to a consensus on what gender is and the difference between gender and sex. And they say that openly in their article. And I just don't feel like you can, I can meet that argument when the terms can't even be defined. One common um, definition of gender is, is this idea that you, you have sex and that's one component. Then you have how society per perceives sex and, and acts towards that sex, and that's another component. And then you have the third component, which is how people feel about their sex, their identity. So that's kind of the working definition I go with. Um, and based on that definition, I don't, I still don't find the concept of gender itself very useful, because what that boils down to is sex, which is something you can't change. Um, society's attitude towards sex, which fair enough may have uh, an impact on how people feel and the actions they have. And then you have how people feel towards their own sex. Now, um, if people were the best experts on themselves based on how they felt, there would be no need for psychologists in the world. You only have to read um, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow to be to realize actually how flawed humans are in their decision making and their judgments in general um, and so unfortunately and, and again I know this is quite emotive and I'm not me I would never try to single someone out or or upset so, someone individually um, but I kind of feel like that part of this gender per perspective this idea that um, I this is how I feel towards it you can feel things that are a true reflection of reality and you can feel things that aren't. And because that's a very subjective thing, to me, it's, it's, kind, of like a hot potato. it's kind of like a hot potato. So my uh, reaction to that is, can we do without it? <laughs> if it's not reliable, can we cut that out and still have a working system? So actually, my view on this at the moment is that I don't think gender is a useful construct for predicting behavior uh, and for talking about sex differences. I think that actually you could swap out um, gender roles by just talking about sex roles. And I feel that the, what the distributions actually are is that you have stereotypical behavior that um, is linked to the sexes. And there's huge distribution around that. Some people uh, bang on that stereotype, other people aren't. Um, but just because you're not bang on a stereotype does not then mean that there's a third or fourth or fifth or 26th construct there that you do fit the definition of. The cold, harsh reality is that um, for any category that you have, some people are going to fit that category better than others. Um, and that's not a reason to be able to opt out of that category altogether. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where I am at the moment with my, my thinking of these things. And that's why I tend to look more towards sex differences rather than gender differences. Um, again, I am, I'm not actively avoiding that information. So at the moment when I'm doing my studies, for example, I'm including a measure of masculine, masculinity and femininity, uh, because if I find data that actually shows, well, um, whether someone is masculine predicts a, um, a mating preference better than being, you know, biologically male, then I'll, I'll change my mind. Um, but so far, I'm not finding any evidence of that. So far, when I, you look at some, uh, there's a, a nice 1993 paper by Doug Kenrick, which did just that, included measures of, of masculinity and femininity. They didn't seem to predict anything um, better than just just sex, just sex. So that's kind of where I am at the moment. It's a very frustrating, emotive um, area, 
if stuff comes along to change my mind, you know, I hate the idea that maybe I am um, right now how people were in the 1940s when you talked about uh, homosexuality or, you know, um, some of the other social challenges or talking about um, rights for, for women and stuff like that. I'm very much in favor of those things. I hate to be that guy in a hundred years time when someone looks at this video and says, God, look how um, this guy wasn't very um, regret progressive. He was regressive. And I, I yeah, I, I hope I'm not going to end up being one of those guys. But at the moment, my working my working model is just focusing on sex. And if I'm proved wrong, I'm proved wrong. Yes. yes. And, and isn't it also true that if we were to accept that uh, the concepts of sex and gender as being two distinct entities, wouldn't it imply that uh, we would come back to certain uh, uh, ancient, the ancient concepts, like, for example, the concept of the ghost in the machine, because we would have, in a sense, to separate the psychological part of us from the rest of the body. Right. Yeah, I, I see. What you're, it's 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 one of these things where, I mean, it was like in that article I was reading. Uh, they they were saying it's very hard to to uncouple these two things, um, but the problem is, from a gender perspective, people are arguing that essentially there's almost you know. One day I wake up and there's now 53 genders, and then I go to sleep and I wake up and there's 54, and there's, and there's 55, and maybe in 10 years' time there'll be 92. So they seem people are uh, basically trying to say you've you've got these unlimited slithers of uh, or unlimited slices that everything's on a complete spectrum and you can occupy any length of that spectrum. But of course, if part of the definition of gender is it incorporates biological sex, and biological sex is very, very binary, you do have uh, some um, uh, some individuals who are intersex, but it's a very, very small number. Well, if you have this component of gender, which is binary, then gender itself cannot, in its entirety, be binary, because it's always going to be anchored in place, or at least some component of it is always going to be anchored in place. And the other mistake that people kind of make is, so you've got um, gender stereotypes, and you've got uh, differences in how people act towards the sexes, but it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing, because where, where did those start? Where did those originally come from? So we're doing that now, but I mean, I'll, I'll, give you an, I'll give you an example. So in that article, uh, the five challenges to the binary perspective, one of the arguments is um, essentially that kids only learn that they are male or female and they only um, form that social category because they learn it from their parents, uh, because their parents dress girls in pink and boys in blue, and then they use that information to start building, you know, putting up a social barrier and categorizing on that basis. And I read that and I just thought, geez, how long do people, how long do these authors think that people wore clothes for? Because I guarantee you there was, at some, there was some point in time where kids were running around forming male and female social categories based on physical appearance, if you know what I mean. So it, it, it seemed like a very, it, it didn't seem to take into account the, the, the history of where we've been before we get here. Um, yeah, it, it, the sex differences between men and women have existed for a long time. Culture has latched onto those and then, uh, you know, these social roles have been developed, but it's kind of like a reinforcing process. And I think if people think about where did that process begin, they'll realize that there is that important component of sex. It's not just about society. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, and so you already alluded a little bit to this earlier in this conversation, but I would like to ask you to please expand a little bit more on this. That is, you alluded to the fact that uh, there's this, and I'm not sure is, if it nowadays it's still a dominant idea or not in evolutionary psychology, that when it comes to mating, 
males compete and females choose, at least until very recently, and I'm not sure if it's still that way or not, it was the dominant idea. And you, and you wrote a paper with Dr. Steve Stewart Williams where you proposed, as you already alluded to that, the mutual mate choice, that is both men and women make choices when it comes to their sexual partners. So could you please talk a little bit about this and if, it, and if the males compete, females choose is still a dominant idea in evolutionary psychology or not? Okay, so this is a, a slight change of topic now. So this is going on to the paper I wrote with Steve. And the idea with that um, is that, so the paper doesn't say that there are no sex differences. It doesn't say that, that there are no domains in which males tend to compete more than, than females. What it says is that evolutionary psychology tends to, through various methods and not maliciously, but it tends to exaggerate this. Uh, it tends to exaggerate the differences between men and women. So the whole idea behind the article is kind of was kind of to set the record straight. It's not something because there's a um, people have used the article quite a bit and my worry is that people are going to start using it as hey men and women are identical it's this mutable mutual make choice thing men and women aren't identical in, in, in a lot of ways um, but what we are compared to some species which are characterized by males competing and females choosing, like the peacock, for example, the differences between men and women are, are much, much smaller. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the general premise behind the model. So what you're, or behind the paper, rather. So what you're asking is that, uh, is the MCFC males compete, females choose uh, element still rife within evolutionary psychology right now? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess it is. So some of the, th the uh, criticisms that we make in the paper, some of the, the, the behaviours that people uh, do uh, or some of the research practices that people have still haven't changed. So I um, reviewed uh, an article recently. Obviously, I can't go into details on what the precise nature of the article was, but the article was very much we're just going to test for this preference in a sample of women. And my response back was, why? And they said, because um, we, we have pre-existing pre ideas, pre-existing research that, that tells us that we should find this in women, but maybe not in men. And I'm like, yeah, but you've missed out on a perfect opportunity to, especially in the middle of a psychology replication crisis, you've missed out on an opportunity to, um, to use the best control group that you can for your experiment. If you're trying to say, we believe that this, um, this preference exists only in women, then why wouldn't you test men in the same way as if you were trying to say, we have this drug that works really, really well for, for depression. Well, why wouldn't you match that with a group that you think uh, uh, depressive symptoms are going to carry on in? Um, so that was one of the ar arguments that we were making in the paper is that by producing these experiments just on one sex, you're kind of painting this picture that the other sex, it, it makes no difference. When as we've said bef uh, before previously, things like a preference for physical attractiveness, yep, there tends to be um, differences there. Men tend to put more emphasis on it than, uh, than women, but it's a relative difference. And if you were to also test a sample of women, you would see that. But by not doing that and just focusing on men in that example, it looks like a bigger difference than it is. So things like that are still are still happening. Uh, and I mean, my response to the uh, to the authors with this review was basically because um, I sympathise because I, I I tend to uh, do a lot of research uh, without Muller behind it. I tend to rely on the um, the goodwill of my participants. And what happens then is if you're limited in participant numbers, sometimes you have to say. I'm going to confine this to my group of interest, basically, to get the numbers. And I said to them, listen, if if that's the deal here, if you had a reduced research budget, which meant that you 
to, to get the best power possible, you focused on one sex, then that's fine. But say that. Don't make it out as if the reason that you're actually doing it is because you're so confident that you won't find this in the other sex that you can just completely disregard that from, from the outset. So there are still some cases where um, people are engaging in research practices that um, exaggerate um, sex differences to the point where people who are reading it are going to feel like we are more of a peacock-type species than we are more like... Um, fuzzy gibbons, which is, is probably a better analogy. Um, the other thing that people do, and I'm kind of guilty of it as well, um, I have to stop myself sometimes, is that people will have a tendency in their language to polarise mean differences. So although it's boring and, and repetitive and doesn't sound very nice, it should always be, um, it, should, it should always be there's a typical difference or an average difference between these two categories. But what happens in the discourse is people start out that way and then it breaks down to um, the reaction time for this group was faster than this group. Well, no, it wasn't. Unless everyone in group A was faster than everyone in group B, it's still a relative difference. And sometimes maybe because we're writing so much or because we're so familiar with the, with the, the topics that we're writing about, we basically engage in this sloppy writing but what we have to do is, is think, who's reading this? If this is someone's first entry into evolutionary psychology, or if this is a, a journalist who's going to write about this, they will take that sentence, and that is what will be burnt into their head. And what that will do is polarize the differences. I do this with students sometimes, so I get them to um, draw two overlapping distributions based on uh, means before they, they can look at them, just by what... The, the author's saying and how they're writing to see if they can predict the overlap. Uh, and they fail so much. They tend to pull these things apart. They end up looking like the same overlap that you'd get with um, male and female gorilla body, body sites quite far apart. So it's still ongoing. and It's going to be an ongoing battle for a little while. But my main concern, based on what uh, I told you earlier, is that people are going to start using that article to deny sex differences it's not a denial, it's just a, a, a minor correction and bringing people in line and giving them a rea reality check of where we really are. Yes, and do you think that one of the main reasons perhaps why people from evolutionary psychology still stick too much to the idea of males competing in females choosing might come from the fact that we know that uh, because men produce gametes that is spermatozoa all the time and women only produce uh, on average one egg per month and when women get pregnant they have to bear the costs of the pregnancy throughout nine months right and and men can uh, don't really need to invest in that pregnancy and and so it would be a better mating strategy for men to try to impregnate as much women as they could and for women to select the best male specimen they could have access to that, that this could be a reason why they focus so much on that idea uh, and why it with that in mind it's really difficult to clarify the different strategies that men and women have when they are to decide if they want to have a long-term relationship or rather a short-term one. Yeah, so we're on about uh, levels of parental investment here. Um, and this is probably where people... So, so evolutionary psychology tends to take these evolutionary biological theories and then apply them to human behavior. Um, and the idea that you can look at uh, uh, gametes, look at the, the, male, the, the male sperm and the female eggs, and see that there's a, an imbalance there. I mean, that actually is meant to be one of the ways that you actually categorize male and you know male and female in animal species is by the size of the of the sex cells. And um, so, the original idea, like you've said, is that if males have uh, lots of tiny sperm that are very cheap to produce and women actually have, or not women, sorry, females in this case, have uh, smaller numbers of sex cells and end up investing more on that level that it causes this Im imbalance. Now, 
the problem comes when you take that theory and you apply it to humans. And the problem comes because humans, that, that is just, just as a caveat, that is what we call obligatory investment. So obligatory investment from an animal's, but let's take a, a general mammal's perspective, um, is like you said, it's a, a, a teaspoonful of, of sperm. And for, for women, they, if they, sorry, I keep saying women, I'm talking mammals at the moment. Um, for females, their investment is they then have to carry the young for X amount of time. They then have to, um, uh, to feed the young via lactation. There's a, a larger investment. That is what we call obligatory parental investment. That's the minimum standard. That what, that's what um, if you try to get out of investment as quickly as you could, that would, would produce quite a, a stark difference. Where humans differ is we are a species that's, that's characterized by, um, by parental care. And because of that, less important um, obligatory parental investment becomes more important is typical parental investment. So what erodes away from this difference, uh, this obligatory investment difference, is the fact that it's not the case that men just deposit seed and run and that women are left holding the baby. That doesn't happen all the time. We can think of examples where it happens, and I'm, but one of the reasons that they're so stark is that they are uh, uh, on a foreground where the background is actually more biparental care, where men actually do invest a lot in a relationship and do invest a lot in children. It can be a very different type of uh, investment sometimes. If you look at some hunter-gatherer societies, for example, um, it tends to be the females and her family that are doing a lot of direct contact and holding of babies and feeding of babies. Um, but men have a part that they play and they have an investment. They invest in terms of teaching and they invest in terms of protection. They invest in terms of resources. So humans are different. And because of that, we're driven more towards this mutual mate choice where men are just as picky about the partners they get um, involved with as women are. So that's that's the, the distinction. I haven't explained that very well because I don't explain things very well. But that's the key distinction is between obligatory parental investment and typical parental investment. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I understand. So I would like to ask you about uh, uh, studies you did on cyber psychology, but before we move on to that, just one more, uh, just one more topic and one more study that you did also that involves mate selection. That is, you did this study about sexual history and present attractiveness. So uh, about the ways men and women would evaluate someone from the opposite sex as a potential partner if they were to know the number of sexual partners they have had before in their life. So could you please talk about this, about the results you obtained and if you also got a sex difference here? Yeah, so that was really interesting. Um, so people, if you were to ask them outright or ask them to predict the results of this study before we ran it, would probably predict a very simple linear relationship whereby um, the more partners someone has, the less desirable they are. Um, for a number of reasons, maybe uh, they're at greater risk of sexual having sexual diseases, maybe they're at greater risk of cheating on you perhaps, uh, but people would generally predict that linear relationship. But we didn't quite find that. What we found was, let's see if I can draw this the right way for you using my fingers. It wasn't just a linear relationship like that, if you're thinking low levels of partners here and high levels of partners there. It was actually more of a bump. So if you had people with no partners, they were less desirable than someone who'd had one, two or three, which tended to be the optimal, and then it fell off. So that, hence the title. So the title of the, the, the article is like, um, people want to make, make with a bit of a pass, but not too much, uh, because the idea there is that, um, you know, if you have someone who's completely sexually inexperienced, um, they may not, that may not be desirable. Perhaps there's something wrong with them. Perhaps there's a social stigma attached with that. Um, so a little bit of experience is great. Not too much, however, then that falls maybe into this risky category. Um, so yeah, so that's the 
the main finding of the paper. You do find some sex differences in there. Um, it's no surprise that um, men tend to be um, more open to uh, a larger number of sexual partners in women. But again, that tends to change by um, context, context of relationship. When you're talking about long-term partners, men and women tend to be just as, as picky as one another. Uh, but when you do short-term mating, then the standards of men tend to relax, um, mainly because of what we were talking earlier, it shifts it from this sort of typical parental investment uh, where bo both uh, sexes are investing a lot down to this obligatory parental investment, um, in which cases guys have not much to lose by making risky, incorrect mating decisions. Um, so it was really interesting. I mean, the one thing I would say about it, though, is it, it is a study on a Western sample. It's what we call a, a weird sample, Western educated, uh, industrialized, rich, yeah. developed. Right you've here. got it. You've got it. Yeah, I always, I always forget the thing. Um, so I've been doing some work recently for a paper where we've been looking at uh, chastity and the importance of that across um, different cultures. And of course, if we ran that study in um, an Islamic country, for example, or maybe in the Bible Belt of America, you might find that actually that linear relationship and this bump then becomes removed because it, it becomes very important to these individuals that they marry a partner who is um, a virgin in, in, in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Very well. So now finally moving on to cyber psychology i would like to ask you to talk about this study that you did where you asked basically women to create avatars for themselves in an online game that is second life in this case but just before that could you please uh, tell us a little bit more about what are the sort of the theoretical scientific bases for, uh, for these sort of studies, because I, I would like to understand a little bit more what are the limitations that these kinds of studies have when we, when we try to generalize from them to real life situations. Okay, fair enough. So one thing I would say, first of all, I did that study quite a long time ago. I actually, that was actually a study that I did as part of my bachelor's thesis. So. Uh, the general, at the time, it wasn't um, an, uh, an evolutionary psychology-driven study. It was actually driven by a uh, theory from social psychology called impression management. The idea behind impression management theory is that um, people, and again, you could put a little bit of an evolutionary spin on it, though I've never really thought about it. The idea is that people have something to gain in social situations by being very tactful in the information that they show you and the information that they don't show you. Um, people are engaging in impression management all the time. It happens on dating websites, it happens on Facebook. You know, people, anyone who has taken lots of selfies of themselves and then gone through the list and gone, I like that one, but not that one, but not that one, has engaged in impression management. And it's almost this little arms race where everyone tries to put forward the best version of themselves that they can. So the idea with this study is we thought, okay, well, you know, we look at people around us, they're doing this uh, with dating and social media. Are they doing it on um, online? And more importantly, I guess, are they doing it um, online in video games when they're not even really aware of it all that much? So what we did with this study is um, we got people into the lab in Second Life. And again, because I've just uh, sat down here and I've talked to you about the importance of testing both sexes, me with in my undergraduate days did no such thing. I tested just a sample of women to keep uh, the sample fairly homogenous due to lack of resources. So I'm the first person to put my hand up and, and say uh, that that probably wasn't the best thing to do. Uh, but what we did is we got women to the lab and we sat them down and they hadn't played Second Life before and we said to them, right, just make a character for yourself. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Second Life, but the reason I chose that as an online tool is that when you create a, um, an avatar in Second Life, you can change anything. Bridge of the nose, uh, eye color, eye width, eye depth, um, how 
wide and flat, your, your face is like, and there's, there's tons of this, hundreds and hundreds of characteristics. So we let people build someone um, to represent themselves in a video game. And then we took all that data and we put it to one side and we reset it back to a default model and said, right, now what we want you to do is we want you to make you, we want you to make yourself as close and as accurate as possible. Um, they all ended up being awful, uh, as mine are whenever I try to generate one. It looks like a very weird, um, you know, like it, you, you find knockoff versions of toys and stuff in shops um, the, where they get the colours all wrong. It, it kind of They kind of end up looking like that. But um, what we did is got them to try and make one as close as to themselves as possible. And then before they left, we said, hey, fill out this questionnaire pack for us. And as part of the pack... There's what we call a figure rating scale, which is a bunch of silhouettes uh, ranging in, in body fat allocation from a, a very, very thin, almost anorexic to morbidly obese. And we say to people, right, circle where you are and then circle where you'd like to be. And this was the main measure of interest. So what we did is we took the difference between um, those two paper measures as an indication of how, how much weight would the participant ideally like to lose or how much would they like to gain? Um, and we took that as kind of the, the measure of interest. And then we tried to predict that by looking at the differences between the two avatars they made on body weight variables. So long story short, the idea is um, if people are going online, and bear in mind, we, did, we didn't give them any prompt, we just said, make an avatar. So some of, some of these people who made their first avatar, they put wings on it, they made the skin purple, they did lots of crazy things, but we just took from that avatar that they made the body weight variables, uh, there was about maybe uh, 10 or 12, um, and we look, then took the body weight variables and we asked them to make one that looked just like them, and took that difference. So now we've got two differences. We've got the differences between the, the um, models, and we've got the differences between this rating scale they've done. If, when they're creating a model for the first time, they're putting into that model their own ideal body weight, then we'd expect those two differences to, to correlate, to line up. And that's what we found, basically. So if individuals wanted to gain weight, they made an ideal, well, they made, sorry, not an ideal, they made a model that had bigger, bigger mass than their self-model. And if they wanted to lose weight, they did it the, the other way around. So that was the general finding in that study. Yes, but just for the audience to understand it a little bit better, uh, the basis for the fact that we can use these sort of online games for in, in studies of experimental psychology in this case is because they have a social element to, to them, right? Because if they didn't have so, it wouldn't work that way. Yes, indeed, that's a very fair point. So one of the things that we did do before we um, got the participant to make an avatar is we prompted that socialization. So we said, you know, here, here is Second Life. We got, got them familiar with it. We showed examples of people interacting with each other through Second Life. And we said, right, we want you to design an avatar now shortly. So we, we misled them. You do this sometimes in psychology studies. We say, shortly, you're going to engage in some social situation. Make an avatar to do that with. So that was the prompting. So really, if, I, if someone gave, gave me a million to rerun the study, um, what you would probably do to make that a lot better is you would do a group of guys as well, um, probably focusing more on muscle mass, I would say, than body weight. Um, and then you'd also have conditions of make an avatar to play some sort of solo game with yourself or something against a computer character. And then you'd also get them to do it under that sort of social priming condition and look for differences there. Um, because that what that would then tell you is there's something... Um, that they are, are engaging in impression management rather than just doing making something which they think looks pretty. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I'm not sure if these kinds of studies exist. Probably they do, and I don't know if you're if you're particularly apt to talk about to talk about them. But I will I will ask you anyway. Uh, if we were to do studies, for example, on social media like Facebook. Do you think that it would be reasonable for us to predict that uh, men 
uh, in their photos on, or in their profile pics would show much more signs of status, let's say, and women signs of physical attractiveness. Yeah, it's, uh, there's actually um, oh, trying to do studies using dating websites and stuff is uh, is very very odd. I, I did one once. It was really interesting where we made identical profiles. So we made um, uh, profiles of men. And they were generally consistent for everything. So they were the same age, they had a similar occupation, and we changed like one element of the profile. Can't remember what it was now, but we changed one element. And then what the dependent measure was going to be is we were going to see which profile got messaged more by women um, to see how attractive that element was that we changed. And we had to, we did the same for women, uh, female profiles. And we had to call this, the study off after a month because the women had had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages and the male profiles had had almost nothing. So that's a, um, a, a good example of a, um, uh, an exaggerated difference between the sexes there. Um, sorry, just get back to your question because I was going off on a tan tangent. Um, remind me what that was again. Can you remind me what the question was? Uh, uh, I was asking basically if it would be reasonable from an evolutionary standpoint yeah. to predict that men would show much more signs of status in their social media and women on the other end more signs of physical attractiveness. Yes, yes. So 100%, I would definitely predict that. OkCupid okay actually um, ha release a lot of the data from their websites. Um, so it's not it's not academic, but it's really, really insightful because there's, there's a lot of data points there. And you can actually go into it and see what are the type of profiles that women are more likely to click on and how um, what does the distribution look like of attractiveness ratings. And you do find some interesting patterns in there. I think actually the um, most attractive type of male photo uh, isn't smiling uh, isn't looking at the camera. It's actually like staring off into the distance and looking quite profound and um, and, and dark and, and brooding and coupled, of course, with very, very attractive looks. But yeah, if what you're asking me is, would we expect uh, men and women to play up the, uh, or play upon or come into line with what the opposite sex is, is after? 100%. But that's not something that's restricted to dating websites. We've known about that for years and years and years from personal ads uh, in newspapers. So there's loads of studies from the 90s uh, which went around looking at that. What are Because, of course, in a personal ad, in a very small space, you get to ask for what you want and tell people what you want, and you get a lot more... Um, men are much more likely to say what they do for a living than women are when they're advertising themselves. Uh, and women are much more likely to describe their physical appearance. So you do find that that dynamic is, is, is mirrored in, um, in that sort of mating market um, online, yeah. If you think that, uh, for example, when people are exposed to something in a virtual environment, yeah. that, that if they process that information uh, at a cognitive level uh, as being the same that they would process if they were in a real-life situation. Okay, yeah, so it, it's almost like, are the, the studies that we do online with online stimuli as, do they map on well to the real world? Um, and to be honest, I don't think I really have a, a proper answer to that question for you. One thing that uh, they do do in evolutionary psychology, I haven't done it personally, is you do get a lot of speed dating um, studies. So they sort of take things away from this sort of hypothetical, sometimes online, sometimes questionnaire based, um, and look to see whether those decisions actually map onto the real decisions that people make. Um, and you do, find, you do find that in some cases and not others. Um, but in terms of specifically mapping of online criteria onto real world behavior, I'm probably not the best expert to, uh, not, not an expert on that. I mean, the one thing I would say is it, it is always something that as a researcher is in the back of your mind, because you know, like I do a lot of work, which is showing someone a picture and then saying, how attractive is this person? And I know for a fact that, you know, attractiveness is such a multifaceted concept that encompasses, encompasses so many things that it's a very, very 
dumbed-down approach to testing these um, these preferences. But sometimes you've just got to work with the tools that you have and try and pick, you know, you try and pick thing, little small things apart and then combine them together to try and find out what's really going on rather than uh, running... I, I get very um, envious sometimes of um, ethologists. So ethologists, they study um, behavior from a biological point of view under this umbrella of biology rather than psychology. And because of that, they get to control a ridiculous amount of things. So someone will be, uh, their, their thing will be make choice in flies. So straight away, they can swap genes out, they can um, make genetic copies of organisms, they can really tightly control all aspects of behavior. Um, quite rightly, can't do that with humans. So you are really restricted in the quality and quantity of data that you can gather from humans. Um, and so sometimes this indirect mapping of um, uh, that you get online and offline with hypothetical situations and certain uh, paradigms, it's almost like a necessary evil, unfortunately. Okay, that's fair enough. I just wanted to understand, for the audience to understand a, a bit better uh, what are the limitations of these sorts of studies, of course. So, uh, just before we finish this here, Dr. Thomas, would you like perhaps to share with people where they can find your work online? Yeah, so I'm hoping you might paste one or two links into the comment section on the YouTube video, uh, fing fingers crossed. Um, but the the article I've just released, which is one looking at the type of things that might influence your preference towards long-term and short-term mating. Um, we released an article at the start of the year in Evolution and Human Behavior. Uh, so hopefully there'll be a link to that. Um, and then the larger theoretical argue, uh, article uh, is in Psychological Inquiry. Um, it's called the, the Ape That Thought It Was a Peacock. And that talks about the differences between mutual mate choice and um, males compete with female choose models and tries to set the record straight on where the sex differences lie. Um, you can also keep uh, an eye out on my personal website, andrewthomas.org, for updates of what I'm doing and little pieces that I'm doing here and there. Okay, very well. I will leave all of those links in the description box to this video and people can go check them out. Okay, so Dr. Thomas, it was really a pleasure to talk with you today. I think it was a very interesting conversation and thank you again a lot for taking the time to come on the show. No worries. Thank you very much. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and consider making a pledge if you like the work that I've been doing. And I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peralga Larsen, Lau Guerrero and Chantel Gelinas. Thank you for all.